matter what you do, that this pain in your neck just will not die. Kind of like the car that I used to have that had the slow drip of oil. No matter how many mechanics I took it to, didn't matter how much money I spent on it, didn't matter how many mechanics told me it was fixed, the only thing that would fix that problem was that the car needed to go away. One of those problems that just wouldn't die. Well, there's some in the Bible who also have a similar sort of problem, just a problem that will not die. It was the legalistic, pharisaic Jews who opposed the message of Jesus Christ, the message of grace that came through the cross of Jesus. They opposed it because it was a threat to their way of life. It was a threat to their importance. It was a threat to everything that they held dear. So they opposed the message of Jesus Christ and His message of grace. They opposed it to His face. But the problem would not go away because every time they opposed Jesus, they turned out to lose the argument with Him. But then one night, they thought that they had caught a break when one of Jesus' most trusted followers comes to them in the night to ask them how much they would pay turn Jesus over to them. They were surprised at just how cheaply Jesus came. 30 pieces of silver. The same price that's paid for a slave. So they were ecstatic to pay the 30 pieces of silver to receive Jesus turned over to them. All the false witnesses that they paid to lie at His trial, they came pretty cheap too. Pilate was already in their back pocket. He would do whatever they wanted. So the next morning, they find that their problem is now a bloody pulp of bleeding flesh hanging on a Roman cross. Problem solved. Or so they thought. A few days later, stories start to emerge, of, first from the Roman guards, stories of angels and resurrected Jesuses. Those stories grew over the next few days. And then 50 days later, at the festival of Pentecost, this problem of theirs, not only was it back, but it was greater than it had ever been before. It exploded at the festival of Pentecost. And now Jews were believing in this message of grace all over the place. And it was now a problem out of their control. It was a problem that just wouldn't die, wouldn't go away. All of that, I think, is exemplified in the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, I believe, is was a living example of this problem that wouldn't go away. The problem of the kingdom of light overcoming the kingdom of darkness. John said that the light is coming to the world and the darkness could not overcome the light. And the Apostle Paul, I think, was a demonstration of that. Because remember, the Apostle Paul at first was the symbolic force of darkness. He was the great persecutor of the church. He was the one who hated Christians more than any other. He was the one who was zealous for putting them in jail and torturing them and putting them in prison. So he exemplified the forces of darkness. But then the forces of darkness were overcome by the forces of light on the Damascus Road that day when he had this encounter with the risen Jesus. And remember what Jesus said to him. It is hard to kick against the goads. In other words, Paul, you cannot overcome the kingdom of light. The light has come into the world and the darkness cannot overcome it. Nowhere, I think, is this better seen, this example that Paul was, the example of the kingdom of light overcoming the kingdom of darkness. Nowhere is that clearer, I think, than in Acts chapter 14, which is where we are for today. 
Acts chapter 14, Paul has just had this experience with the Lyconians in Lystra. He has preached the gospel to them. They misunderstood what he was saying and they now believed him to be this Greek god. Hermes and Barnabas was Zeus. And so then they're going to sacrifice an ox to them. And uh, Paul stops them and explains to them, no, 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 you got all of this wrong. And their opinion of Paul goes from way up here to way down here. Then throw in there the Jews that have now come from Iconium. They stir them up. And the next thing you know, they're throwing rocks at Paul. And they stone Paul. That's where we'll pick up today. Let's read our passage. Um, we'll start from verse 19. I'll read down through verse 23. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city they, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul is stoned here in Acts chapter 14. I believe that stoning probably was one of the worst ways that one could die, as if there were a good way to die perhaps in your sleep. But of all the other ways to die, I think that perhaps stoning must have been among the worst. Not only was it extraordinarily painful and long, it's, it doesn't take very long to hurt someone by throwing rocks at them, but it takes a whole lot longer than you might think to kill someone by throwing rocks at them. So not only was it painful, not only was it long, not only was it frightening, but it was also extraordinarily humiliating to stone to death. And so Paul is stoned here. I, I can't help but think about this as we think of, of the rocks bouncing off of Paul's skull. I can't help but wonder if Paul's thoughts went back to that day in Jerusalem now seven, several years ago in which he held the coats of those who stoned Stephen. I think it's probably likely that Paul's thoughts went, at least momentarily, to that day. But as they're throwing the stones, and as these stones are bouncing off of his skull, and apparently he is stoned to death. We don't know for, for sure if Paul actually died here. The text tells us that they supposed that he was dead. Now, I've got to assume that the ancient Lyconians were not stupid. They were primitive people, but I think that they probably understood how to tell if a person was alive or dead. But we don't know for sure if Paul was actually stoned to death or it just appeared that he was dead. I think that, that it's probably likely that he was stoned to death because if we go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we find there that Paul tells of a, of a time in which he was allowed to go and see heaven and come back. And I think it makes just a lot of sense that that was this moment, this time, he actually was stoned to death. God actually resurrected but in either case, he's a bloody pulp of a broken body. Broken bones, broken skull and all. And they drag his body, his lifeless body, out to the trash heap. And they throw him on the trash heap and the dung heap for the, for the dogs to come and eat. And then the disciples gather around him. And he wakes up. And he gets up. And I guarantee you that some women screamed when Paul opened his eyes and got up. 
because this was certainly miraculous. It was the problem that won't ever go away. I mean, they had stoned him to death. Could that not have ended this problem? But it is the problem that will not go away. And the reason that this problem will not go away for these Jews from Iconium is because our God is the controller of life and death. Our God holds in his hand the power of life and death. And it is not without his permission that anyone, least of whom the Apostle Paul, could die. And so if Paul's work is not done, if God is not finished with what Paul has to, for him to do, and obviously God was not finished with Paul's work, then no one can take Paul's life from him because God is the controller of life and death. You read in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. It didn't matter if they stoned Paul with boulders. If God was not ready for Paul to move on to the next life, then he would not. Just as he sits in the Roman prison and writes to the Philippians there, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But you know what? My life is in the hands of God. He is the controller of life and death. And so therefore, Paul is an example here, not only of just the problem that won't go away, but he's an example that reminds us that our God holds in his hands the power of life and death. And no one, no child of God, will lose their life without God's permission. I'm in a living example of this. I think maybe some of you may be aware of the fact that I was involved in uh, February of 1998. I was involved in a rather serious car accident. Probably not many of you are familiar with just how serious it was. But um, in the middle of a Colorado winter, I slid my truck off of Ute Pass middle of Colorado. Now, Ute Pass, if I could show you a picture of Ute Pass today, you would see that the area in which I slid my truck off the road, um, there was about a 600-foot drop, 6 to 800-foot drop down to the valley below, and it was a 45-degree 45 45 grade. Most of it was treeless. I'm not wearing a seatbelt. Slide off the side of the road in this one-ton crew cab, four-wheel drive, huge truck. And at that moment, at that moment, I knew that I was dead. I don't know if you've ever been there. A moment in which you were certain that your life was over. That's, that's where I was at that point. After rolling for a while, a bunch of broken bones, one of my arms finally came out of the truck as it was rolling, and my left arm got mangled pretty badly. But finally, a scrubby little pine tree, maybe about four inches in diameter, stopped a one-ton crew cab four-wheel drive diesel Ford truck from rolling down a 45-degree grade. Stopped it wheels down while I'm still conscious, able to get out and get back up to the road. Our God is the controller of life and death. And in 1998, though I was a child of God, I was far from God. Yet he had a plan for me. And his plan involved my life, and I not even met at that point. My children and this church, whatever else God has in store for me. And until that plan had come about, no one could take my life from me. I talk to many folks, particularly elderly folks, who are at a point in their life in which their bodies are worn out, their minds are worn out, they're tired. And one question I'm asked from time to time is, why am I still here? And there's only one answer for that. You're still here because God has something for you. What 
We don't know for sure. God still has something for you. Maybe it's one of your lost family members that you have not talked to in years and you need to pick up the phone and you need to call them. Maybe it's that lost person that lives across the street that annoys you so badly with his loud music. Maybe you need to build a relationship with that person. Maybe one of your lost family members is going to be brought into salvation through the reality of your passing. But yet God has not yet prepared that person sufficiently, and so therefore your passing can't come yet. Whatever it may be, maybe a combination of several things. But our lives cannot be taken from us until God allows it. Now, let me be quick to say what that does not mean. Our God is the controller of life and death. That does not mean that you are bulletproof. It does not mean that you are invincible. It does not mean that although others can't take your life from you until God allows it, that does not mean that you cannot shorten your own life through your own sinful bad choices. We all can overcome, if you want to put it that way, we can overcome the will of God by shortening our own life through our own sinful and bad choices. Let me just give an example. The best example that I can come up with would be smoking. Smoking, folks, shortens your life. Smoking is a sin. You don't often hear the sin of smoking preached from the pulpit. But smoking disgraces the temple that is the body of God, or that is the temple of God. It shortens our life. And so our sinful choices can overcome the will of God by shortening our life prematurely. Or, um, how about this one? This is another one that doesn't get preached too often from the pulpit. The sin of eating wrongly. The sin of gluttony. Overeating. Eating bad things. Eating things that are not healthy for your body. You know how Christians, we, we always... Let me switch over. We always pray over our meals, right? And it's always kind of humorous to me to hear Christians pray over such completely unhealthy meals. Lord, bless this food to the nourishment of my body. And there's no nourishment on the plate. As though God is just going to miraculously transform it into, into something nourishing. He's going to transform Kentucky Fried Chicken into a plate of broccoli as it goes down your throat, right? God doesn't step in and prevent our sinful choices from shortening our life. That's not what it means when the Bible tells us that God controls life and death. We can thwart the will of God through our own sinful choices, but that is to say that the child of God cannot have his or her life taken from him until God allows it, and God will not allow it until it fulfills his purpose. So we see the Apostle Paul here. They stone him. For all intents and purposes, we assume that he was lifeless, that his, his, the life had left his body, and yet he stands back up. He is the problem that will not go away. So then we see in verse 21, or in verse 20, he rose up and entered the city. Now there's a shock. Paul gets up and doesn't leave Lystra, but he goes back into Lystra. And I'm thinking, as I'm, uh, as I'm meditating on this passage, I'm wondering just what the reaction was as Paul walked back into town. They thought that he was a god. They were going to offer sacrifices to him until he corrected them. No, 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 no. I'm just a man like you are. Then they stone him, and then he comes back into the city. I'm wondering what their reaction would have been. But no doubt, Paul comes back into the city. His purpose here is to strengthen 
the believers there that were there to show them that Jesus has not been defeated. God has not been defeated. Because there were believers. There were Lyconians who believed. Remember the, uh, the crippled man back from verse 8? Luke says that he had faith. There were other disciples that we're told about here. So some believed, and Luke or, uh, Paul comes back in to show them that uh, Jesus has not been overcome. But he doesn't tarry long. Verse 21, the next day, um, they uh, leave and they go to Derby. Um, Paul and Barnabas go to Derby, verse uh, 21. They get there and they preach the gospel to that city and make many disciples. So uh, we're not told about uh, any events that happen in Derby, but we are told that he goes there and he preaches the gospel with great success. There apparently is revival in Derby. And then notice what Paul does. Paul and Barnabas, they return not only just to Lystra, but to Iconium and to Antioch. Now, Iconium and Lystra were both places that Paul was kicked out of. Paul and Barnabas were run out of town in both of those places. They go back to the same places which they were run out of town from. And then verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So Paul and Barnabas go back through these three cities in which they have now established churches and there are believers there. And he strengthens the souls of the disciples, encourages them to continue in the faith and teaches them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now we can read verse 22 two different ways. We can read verse 22 as though Luke is telling us three things that, Luke, that Paul and Barnabas do as they travel back through these cities. They uh, strengthen the, the disciples, they encourage them to continue, and they teach them about the tribulations of the faith. Or we could read it, and I think this is how Luke wants us to read it. We could read it that Luke is saying to us, Paul and Barnabas go back through these three cities, strengthening the souls of the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by teaching them that through many tribulations they must enter the kingdom of God. I think that that is what Luke intends for us to get from that. Not that Paul and Barnabas go and do these three things, but they do one thing by encouraging them to continue and teaching them of the tribulations that they must encounter. I think that that makes more sense with the flow of thought that Luke is giving us. So, Luke, so if that is Luke's intention here, what that is telling us is that Paul encourages them, he strengthens them by teaching them, first of all, that you don't ask Jesus into your life and all your problems go away. That you don't repent and come to faith in Jesus and all of a sudden now everything's just hunky-dory and your life that was really not so good before, now it's a whole lot better now. That's not what Paul was teaching them. He was teaching them that this step that you have taken has now made your life a whole lot harder. But it has also replaced, placed a requirement upon you. And that requirement is that you must continue in the faith. Paul doesn't teach them, okay, now that you're saved, you can never be unsaved. He instead teaches them, you must continue in the faith. You must go on. You cannot turn back. Just as Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Every person whom I have had the privilege of leading into a relationship with Christ, every single one of them, as soon as that conversion appears to take place, the first thing I say to them is, this step that you have just taken just made your life a whole lot harder 
your problems didn't just go away. Your problems just multiplied. Because as long as you were living for yourself, as long as you were living for the God of this world, He had no reason to bother you. He had every reason, in fact, to make your life easy. Now that you have made this choice and taken this step in your life, then yes, you do have the Holy Spirit now indwelling in you. And that makes all the difference in the world. But you also just painted a target on your forehead. You just declared to the God of this world, I am now declaring myself as your enemy. And now that makes a tremendous difference. But there is no turning back. In order for this step that you have taken to be genuine, you must continue and you must persevere. As Jesus said, the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. He says in Luke's Gospel, the one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of me. And so, those are realities for the life of the new Christian. How discouraging would it be for the new Christian to learn those later on down the road? Oh, I thought that this was going to make a big difference in my life, and, and it sure has, only most of the difference is bad. Now my family's turned against me, now my friends have turned against me, now everything just seems to be going wrong in my life. How discouraging would that be? Rather, Paul encourages them, strengthens them, tells them the reality of following Christ. The reality of following Christ is that your life just got more difficult. It got less complicated, but more difficult. And that's how I believe he strengthens them. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Then verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church. So here we see the consistent habit of Paul. Every, in fact, this is, this is the consistent picture that we see throughout the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament. Every church that Paul plants, he appoints elders. Elders, that's not speaking of, of their age, their physical age. That's speaking of their role in the church. He appoints elders. Elders are um, not the same as deacons in the New Testament. Elders were, they were a group of spiritual leaders, appointed spiritual leaders who were the spiritual direction of the church. And so he points elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting. With prayer and fasting. If there is one picture of the New Testament church that seems to be a consistent picture throughout the story of Acts, it is this. One of the clearest distinguishing factors of the New Testament church is that they were a fasting church. They were a fasting church. The church fasts when Paul, when uh, Peter and John are thrown in prison. The church fasts when they begin to grow in Jerusalem. The church fasts when they appoint Paul and Barnabas to be sent out as missionaries. The church fasts over who should be appointed elders. It seems to be a consistent picture throughout that when we see the early church in the pages of Acts, we see a church that consistently and regularly fasted. When they faced difficult decisions, who to send out as missionaries? They fasted. When they faced difficulties, Paul and, or Peter and John are in prison. They fasted. When they faced um, situations in which they desperately needed the hand of God, the church is growing in Jerusalem beyond control. They fasted. Over and over again, we see a picture of the church 
fasting, when they face difficulties, when they face questions. Do we face anything like that today? Do we face difficulties today? Do we face questions for which we don't have the answer? How much do we look like the New Testament church? You know, here's one thing that I hear quite regularly. I hear something like this. I wish our church would grow. I want our church to grow. Are you fasting over that? Are you fasting? I don't know, maybe you are. Because Jesus teaches us that when we do fast, we're to do it in secret as much as possible. So I don't know, maybe you are. Just ask the question. Are you fasting over that? My children are making some really bad decisions. Are you fasting over that? I don't know what to do about this situation in my life. I feel overwhelmed. I feel out of control. Are you fasting over that? This is the picture that we see of the early church. When they needed a special hand from God, then they fasted. How much are we like that? Or how much are we unlike that? The early church was a church that clearly had the power of God. And so just we ask ourselves, how much do we look like this church? They, they with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they leave these brand new baby, three or four day old Christians just to the world. Hopefully they'll make it, right? Not at all. They committed them to the Lord in whom they believe. Well, let's set that thought aside because Luke's going to come back to that in this next section. So let's read the next section. Verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the, the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that, the, that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. So they come back here, back to Antioch. Antioch is the place that, remember, they commissioned them, they sent them out from Antioch. And so they come back to Antioch for the very first missionary missions report. The very first time missionaries came back to give a report of what had happened on the field. It's been maybe a year. We're just I'm just guessing at that. Maybe a year or so. They've been gone. It's at least been several months. Maybe more than that. Maybe a couple of years. So they've been gone a while. They come back. We get the picture here that all of the church gathers together with excitement. Um, when they, they uh, gathered the whole church, they gathered the church together. So the picture I have is that everybody was excited. Paul and Barnabas are back. And we can't wait to hear of what happened. And so they give this report. They declare how God, how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, that's going to become very important in chapter 15. That sets up chapter 15. Because all of chapter 15 is concerned with this problem, or this question, I should say, of the Gentiles. Can a Gentile become a Christian without becoming a Jew? Because Jesus was the Messiah to the Jews. So therefore, how does that work? That's what chapter 15 is all is, is concerned with. And so that sets up chapter 15. This door of faith to the Gentiles. But let's look very quickly at what, um, what Paul and Barnabas had reported. From there, they, they, they came to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Their work has been completed. They didn't come back 
incomplete. They came back having fulfilled the work that they were sent out for. And isn't that a wonderful thing to be able to say? That I have completed what God has sent me out to do. I have fulfilled what I was sent out to do. The victory, folks, is not in starting the work of God. The victory is in finishing the work of God. Again, Jesus says in Matthew 10, 22, the one who endures to the end, that's the one that will be saved. Paul will later on write to Timothy in his second letter to Timothy, and he'll say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse, I'm sorry, 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Won't it be wonderful if you can say that one day? Won't it be wonderful if you can say at the end of your life, when, like we talked about before, that won't come until God allows it? Won't it be wonderful for you to look back and say, I have finished the race. I have been faithful. I have completed what I was sent out to do. Because that is where the victory is, folks. It's, there's a lot of people that begin the work of the kingdom. There's far less that finish the work of the kingdom. So he comes and he says, he declares to them that he's fulfilled what has been fulfilled. Verse 27, and when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. Let, let's, um, let's take a look quickly at the other end of this story. Chapter 13, the beginning of chapter 13. Sort of like bookends around the story. Here's how the story begins. The Holy Spirit says in chapter 13, verse 2, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Verse 4, And then being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Now the other end of that story is they declared what God had done with them. Folks, they weren't here to say what Paul and Barnabas had done. Paul and Barnabas, Paul could not have struck Bar-Jesus blind. Paul could not have healed the crippled man in Lystra. Paul can call them to repentance and he can preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, but Paul cannot grant repentance to any of them. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts sometimes is called the Acts of the Apostles, right? The Acts of the Apostles. In fact, your Bible may say that, the Acts of the Apostles, but I think that that's a misleading name. You understand, of course, God didn't name it the Acts of the Apostles. We put that name onto it, but I think that that sometimes is misleading because more so than the Acts of the Apostles, these are the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because it is the Holy Spirit who has done all these things that Paul is now simply reporting. This is why that they couldn't kill Paul in Lystra. This is why this, they could break his skull, but they couldn't take his life. Because this wasn't his work that he was doing. This was God's work that he was doing. This is why repentance came in Derby. This is why there were believers in Lystra and believers in Iconium, believers in Antioch. This is why uh, that, that they left behind churches everywhere they went. Because this was the work, not of man, but of God. And so Paul comes back. He and Barnabas stand before this church that has commissioned them and sent them out. And they declare to them, I have finished what you sent me out to do. I have done the work of God. I wonder, folks, if that can be our report. Because you may not think that you are missionaries, but we will stand before our sending agent one day as well to give a report of our missionary activity. 
Will you, like Paul and Barnabas, will we as a church, will you as individuals, will you be able to say, I have fulfilled what I was sent out to do. I have completed the work of God. I was not busy with the work of man. I was busy with the work of God. Paul will later on write to the Philippian believers in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. We sung this earlier. That I am convinced of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Because it's His work. That's why He could leave believers in Lystra that were three or four days old in their faith. Because He wasn't leaving them to the wolves. He was committing them to the God who had saved them in the first place.